This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In the first perspective on our program today, I want to think with you about Standard and Poor's announcement about the American government's debt. Last week, Standard and Poor's announced that it might need to downgrade the U.S. government's AAA bond rating for the first time in history because of the dim prospects for serious debt reduction in our nation. This panicked investors, at least in the short term, who believe that treasuries are the last safe haven in an uncertain world. A dip in the U.S. bond rating would erode billions of dollars worth of savings and raise the future cost of borrowing by the federal government. More than anything else in recent memory, this warning points out that the United States has a big unsolved fiscal problem. And this announcement follows on the heels of several other warnings. A few weeks ago, PIMCO, the world's biggest bond fund, said it was eliminating its holdings of the U.S. government debt. The International Monetary Fund lectured the United States in a tone that sounded more like it was addressing a teetering third world nation, not the fund's largest shareholder, the United States. The IMF argued that a credible strategy, their words, to stabilize U.S. national debt is urgently needed. And then with this announcement, the Standard & Poor's cited a material risk, their words, that there could be no agreement on how to deal with medium and long-range budget issues by 2013. If nothing happens by then, these are the words of the Standard & Poor's organization. This would, in our view, render the U.S. fiscal profile meaningfully weaker than that of peer AAA sovereigns. Put another way, the greatest intangible asset of the United States could evaporate. If this downgrading were to occur in our rating as a nation in terms of our bonds, what would the results be? It would increase borrowing costs for home buyers and businesses as well as for the government. It would drive down the value of the dollar and add inflation to our woes as a nation and perhaps even ignite another global credit crisis similar to what occurred in 2008. Finally then, as economist Paul Samuelson argues, we won't make any progress on reducing our debt until A, Democrats concede that spending control requires genuine cuts in Social Security and Medicare, which now total $1.3 trillion annually and represent 35% of federal outlays, And B, Republicans acknowledge that even after significant spending cuts, tax increases will be needed to balance the budget. But there's little sign of either. President Obama rebuffed Social Security and Medicare cuts. Most Republicans held fast on taxes. What we have now is a public relations war in our nation. Powerfully and with compelling logic, Samuelson maintains, quote, Our budget problem is conceptually simple. Government spending commitments, driven by more retirees and uncontrolled health costs, vastly exceed the existing tax base. There's an argument about how fast changes should be made to protect the economic recovery right now. But there should be no argument over the need for changes to prevent a debt crisis, 
Too many Treasury bonds frighten investors and drive up interest rates. We still await a serious debate about which cuts should be, which programs should be cut and which taxes should be raised. Congressional Republicans advance a radical plan for shrinking government and are not candid about it. Obama defends the status quo of ever bigger government and is not candid about it. The serious debate has not yet begun, but it must. Two additional thoughts. First of all, the Obama budget, which was presented to Congress in the early part of this year, 2011, and a revised one just a couple of weeks ago, reflect a deep commitment to growth in government spending, something that cannot occur. Put very simply, the United States government must function in its spending at 19 or 20 percent of GDP, gross domestic product. Currently, it's functioning at 24.4% of GDP. For both of Obama's budget proposals, the one earlier this year and the one a few weeks ago, that percentage remains at 22%. The proposal submitted by Paul Ryan, which the House has adopted, would drop U.S. spending to slightly below 20% of GDP. Put rather crassly, Both Obama budgets maintain a spending binge by the United States government with increased borrowing. Ryan's proposals reduce both significantly. Secondly, again, the economist Robert Samuelson suggests that this nation must ask itself four basic questions. And I think these questions are right on. One, how big of a government do we want? An aging population and high health costs mean that average spending as a share of GDP will rise by a third or more in the next 10 to 15 years if today's programs simply continue as they now are. Two, who deserves government subsidies and how much? About 55% of spending goes to individuals, including the elderly, veterans, farmers, students, the disabled, poor. We must have this conversation about who deserves subsidies and how much. Thirdly, how much, if at all, should social spending be permitted to squeeze national defense spending? Are we coming into a point in our history, in other words, where we must cut defense spending just to support our social spending? And finally, if taxes rise, how much and on whom? Which taxes would hurt the least? in terms of economic growth. However, we are not having this debate. We're not answering these questions. In his recent budget speech at George Washington University, the president was a telling model of evasion, contradiction, and deception. He warned that by 2025, present tax levels should suffice only to pay for Medicare and Medicaid, Social Security, interest we will, and the debt. Every other national priority, education, transportation, even our national security, will have to be paid for with borrowed money. But astonishingly, and I just find this absolutely staggering, the president has presented no plan to balance the budget. The President of the United States, and may I say most in Congress, are flirting with profound danger, and the American people should call them to accountability. In our second perspective on the program today, I want to refocus our thoughts on the Middle East 
and talk about a new Middle Eastern Cold War that is emerging, the Cold War between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Last week, Iran and Egypt's new government singled that they were moving quickly to thaw decades of frosty diplomatic relations. Iran said it appointed an ambassador to Egypt for the first time since the two sides froze diplomatic relations more than three decades ago. Both the United States and Israel are deeply committed that such moves indicate that Egypt is reordering its foreign policy, which could further empower Iran and its regional clients, Hamas and Hezbollah. For decades, Egypt was a vital player in the regional balance of power. With its large population, its U.S. finance, military, and diplomatic ties with Israel, and its counterweight against both Iran and Syria, if this shift goes forward, it will also impact the role of Saudi Arabia as the chief counterweight to Iran. The shifting balance of power in the Middle East is perhaps magnified in the ongoing struggle between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Let me summarize the depths of this struggle between these two Middle Eastern nations. First of all, Iran has long pursued a nuclear program that both the United States and Saudi Arabia contend is aimed at producing nuclear weapons. Were this to occur, Saudi Arabia may need to pursue its own nuclear program. The Saudis have relied on U.S. nuclear umbrella and on the anti-missile defense systems deployed throughout the Persian Gulf region. These systems are intended to intercept Iran ballistic missiles that could deliver nuclear warheads in the not-too-distant future. This basic balance with the Saudi Arabia relying on the United States could break down if, indeed, Iran acquires nuclear weapons. Secondly, there is a basic difference in the type of Islam that is represented in each nation. Saudi Arabia is a Sunni Islamic kingdom while Iran is the world's leading Shiite Islam kingdom. These differences exacerbate the ongoing struggle between Arabs and Persians for control of land and resources in the Middle East. The holiest sites of Islam, Mecca and Medina, are under the care of Saudi Arabia. The holiest sites of Shiite Islam are overseen by Iran. Thirdly, in terms that are important, they differ geopolitically. Iran has strong allies in Syria and, of course, Hamas and Hezbollah. Saudi Arabia has close allies in the Persian Gulf, Emirates and monarchies, Morocco, until recently, Egypt, and the Fatah Organization of the Palestinian Authority. The Saudi camp is pro-Western and leans toward tolerating the state of Israel. The Iranian grouping thrives on its reputation in the region as a scrappy resistance camp defiantly opposed to the West and to Israel. In addition, both Iran and Saudi Arabia prefer to work through proxy politicians and covertly funded militias, as they did famously during the long Lebanese civil war in the 1970s and into the 1980s, when Iran helped birth Hezbollah among the Shiites, while the Saudis backed Sunni militias and still do in Lebanon. Even as far away as Indonesia, Iranian clerics are expanding their activities, growing Shiite Islam even in Indonesia. Finally, the Saudis view much of the current unrest in the Middle East 
as Iranian meddling. For that reason, the Saudis have helped in Bahrain, where many Shiites openly nurture cultural and religious ties to Iran. Iran uses state media and the regional Arab-language satellite channels it supports to depict the pro-democracy uprisings as latter-day manifestations of its own revolution in 1979. But, dear people, nothing could be further from the truth than that. What's happening in the Arab and Middle Eastern world has no connection whatsoever to the Iranian revolution of 1979, because Iran is not interested in democracy, only in fomenting more unrest so that it can take advantage of that unrest. But neither are the Saudis interested in democracy. So the two giants of the Middle East come to the same conclusion, but from very different perspectives. Saudi Arabia will remain pro-Western, it will remain the principal bulwark against Iran in the Middle East, and there will remain a cold war of sorts between Iran and Saudi Arabia. But neither of these giants are that secure. Many changes could be sweeping through the Middle East with tremendous uncertainty about where it all will end. It has been quite a few decades since we've seen this much unrest in the Arab nations and now the Persian nation of Iran in the Middle East. There's a lack of uncertainty exactly where this is all going to end. But as we look at it, it's hard to see that this would be positive for either the United States or for Israel. The winds of change are blowing powerfully through the Middle East. We do not know what the end result will be. This should be a matter of much care and concern, and might I add prayer for those of us who love the people of Israel and are concerned about the stability of that whole region. In our third and final perspective on our program today, I want to think with you about the futility of human control and manipulation when it comes to technology and use antibiotic drugs as a test case. First of all, let me develop some perspective. With the advent of modern technology, humanity has sought increasing control, with the goal being manipulation of nearly everything for the good of the human race. Since the 18th century Enlightenment, several historical developments have produced an openness in Western civilization towards seeking to control and manipulate human beings. First of all, as a mechanistic view of humanity. For example, with organ transplants in medicine, the maintenance of organ donor banks, sperm donor banks, discussion about the harvesting of organs from cadavers, and so on, it is not an immense step, then, to view humans as near machines, which, when one part breaks down, another is ready to replace it. This is not medicine's intent, of course. But the level of expectation is that somewhere there is a part for me. What naturally follows is to view the human body as a machine that with proper maintenance and repairs can keep on functioning. This produces an openness to accepting conception and even genetic manipulation in our culture. Another development is the increasing human control over nearly every aspect of our lives. 
We live in climate-controlled buildings, drive climate-controlled vehicles, access voluminous amounts of information via the Internet at the click of a mouse. We can travel anywhere in the world in less than a day and are living longer than at any time in recent human history. The reason? Technology. Because of human dependence on technology, there is the natural expectation that all human problems can ultimately be solved by technology. And those problems include infertility problems, health problems, and even emotional problems. Further, the concept of the scientific imperative is another cause for modern technological openness. The concept assumes that because technology has made a particular procedure or invention or practice possible, we therefore as a civilization must go forward with it. The scientist can, C-A-N, becomes the civilization's ought. We ought to do it. This is a powerful assumption that is pervasive in much of Western civilization. The invention of a deadly weapon or procedure, even something as unthinkable as chemical and biological warfare, relentlessly presses on until someone determines we must produce these weapons. The same logic drives conception and genetic procedures. Once the procedure is developed, it's nearly impossible to stop someone somewhere from using it. Another development producing this openness toward technological manipulation is the modern emphasis on pleasure and pain reduction as virtual moral imperatives. Think of the common everyday headache. The typical drugstore in America is filled with dozens of remedies that can treat the headache. Pain and discomfort are foreign to our lifestyle, and our expectations are that there has got to be a pill somewhere for this ailment, whatever it might be. This expectation transfers as well to the good life that modern conveniences have produced. We expect, indeed almost demand, ease, comfort, and daily pleasure in the forms of good food, entertainment, and self-indulgence. In the words of apologist Francis Schaeffer, personal peace and affluence drive Western civilization. The result is an openness toward and the positive expectation about technological manipulation of human beings. Well, with that background, let me examine a fairly recent development that is shocking and frightening many people. We are facing a new reality in the West, the rising risk of antibiotic resistance, what some are calling the superbug. Antibiotics work against bacteria, not viruses. Antibiotic pharmaceutical products kill bacteria, have virtually no effect on viruses. Yet, patients press their doctors to prescribe for them. For viral infections such as colds and the flu, antibacterial drugs, and they don't really work. But the result then is that the bacteria develop stronger resistance to the drugs. So the result now, and we're starting to see this in parts of America, but definitely in other parts of the world, the result is longer and more serious illnesses, lengthening people's stays in the hospital, and complicating their treatment. In a recent article in The Economist, one example was cited that stunned me, quite frankly. Nearly 400 
and 50,000 new cases of multidrug-resistant tuberculosis are recorded each year. One-third of these people, it'll be one-third of that 450,000, are dying from the disease of tuberculosis. That is an example of what is starting to happen in parts of the world. What is beginning is resistant bacteria developed over years and years and years, that resistance, what some, again, are calling the superbug. There is little doubt that antibiotic resistance is a growing challenge for the medical community and for world health. As with all things human, there are limits as to what we can completely control and manipulate. If indeed there are superbugs, they're not taking over the world, but they remind us as human beings that it is impossible to absolutely control everything about our world. Superbugs should also remind us of our humility and of our utter dependence on God as a species living in a fallen world. Humanity bears a unique quality, and it is that we are created in the image of God. Of all of God's creation, it is only humanity that bears that mark We are of worth. We are of value. We also, as a result of being in the image of God, represent him. We have stewardship responsibilities over his world. We are to rule as dominion stewards over his world. What we are seeing in this area of some pharmaceutical products with bacterial resistance developing, again, what some are calling the superbug, what we're seeing is that our technological stewardship, our ability to control the various areas of our life, especially things like flu and cold, as well as other diseases, is beginning now to produce these bacterial resistant strains. Our ability to control, our ability to manipulate has limits, and we are starting to see some of those limitations. As I mentioned just a moment ago, that fact, that reality should produce a profound humility in the human race. And it also should remind us of a very central truth to our faith, especially our faith of Christians. It is our dependence on God. We depend on his grace. We depend on his compassion. We depend on his mercy. He offered that in Jesus Christ. But it also is a part of our 24-7 living. We are to be dependent on him, recognize that dependence, and then live to his glory and his honor. It's perhaps combining the thought of Jesus when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. I understand that to mean that spiritual dependence. And 1 Corinthians 10.31, that all we do, whatever we eat, drink, whatever we do, we are due to the glory of God. That kind of humility and that kind of dependence is something I hope is reawakened even as we face these technological challenges, including this so-called super bug. It reminds us that we live in a fallen world, and it is only in Jesus Christ that the answers to all those dimensions of living in a fallen world are realized. May God have mercy on us as we face this growing challenge together. 
You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.